When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Green light 3-0 and she's gone! Welcome to The 3-0 Show, part of The Athletic Baseball Show for Thursday, May 18th. Derek Van Riper. Richard Rowley, Eno Saris here with you on this Thursday. On this episode, we discuss another ejection due to sticky substances. Domingo Herman, the culprit this time. We'll talk about a big series happening in the NL Central. Cardinals Brewers in progress. Some big tests for the Twins and Rangers in progress. Uh, the Mets have called up a prospect in hopes of tweaking their roster and finding a way to put some more runs on the board. So we'll talk about what's happening with the Mets later on in this show. And I have a game show lined up, which is really exciting, at least for me and hopefully for everybody listening. I don't know if it is exciting for Eno and Britt. I will fail. Uh, <laughs> I get major anxiety over this kind of stuff. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully I can calm your nerves with some good news. Before we jump into the rundown, I want to tell you about New York Times Audio, a new iOS app for New York Times new subscribers. It has our show plus other great podcasts from The Athletic, exclusive shows, narrated articles, and more. New York Times Audio, download it now at nytimes.com slash audio app. So, good news. Soothing podcasts available. All in one place. All in one place. <laughs> Let's begin with Domingo Herman, the sticky stuff drama, his ejection and subsequent automatic 10-game suspension that is forthcoming as part of a very contentious Yankees-Jays series. I mean, these are two teams that are division rivals. They don't like each other anyway. But, Britt, this feels like there's a little more at stake than the typical mid-May series between these two teams. Yeah, I think it all started, obviously, with the Aaron Judge drama. Um, earlier in the series. So what that really did was anger the Yankees. And then obviously the Blue Jays thought the Yankees were cheating. So they were angry. And so then, you you know, you have a lot of tempers flaring. And in, in the in the series, there's just nowhere to put them. Like if they play in two months, we shouldn't see spillover from this. But when they're playing each other back to back like this, you're going to see spillover. You're going to see, you know, that carryover. And, and that's what's happening here, you know, to some extent. And the Yankees need these games badly, even though it's only May. It feels like the Yankees need every win they can get right now. And Toronto, of course, is also trying to compete in an American League East that it feels like the Rays are pretty much running away with. So everyone else is just competing for second place. So it doesn't surprise me that we had the game that we had last night. I, for one, am here for it. Sometimes I think baseball early on in the season is just like, ah, wake me up in July, right? When it starts to matter. I love the drama that we've seen. And it what's interesting is with a guy like Domingo Herman is we already saw him get in trouble previously, but not suspended. So it's good to see them at least kind of after suspending Max Scherzer say, Hey, we are going to continue to enforce this rule because the rule is only good if it's enforced. And the big issue was, well, how come 
her mom was told to wash his hands and go back out on the mound earlier this year, right? Um, again, this was that same crew, um, but it is good to see some of these guys not able to get away with it. If you're going to suspend Max Scherzer, and someone in baseball said this at the time, if you're going to suspend a guy who everyone knows is going to the Hall of Fame, you better be suspending the guys below him too. And that's what it's doing. I don't know. You know, you probably have an opinion on this, but it seems like they're they're doing a good job in the checks. They are random. They're not like after every inning. But the stakes are so high with these 10-game suspensions that I don't know if it's worth it for guys to try to cheat and sneak stuff in. Do you? Yeah, I mean, the perspective we've gotten from the pitchers is that they are just using rosin and they're maybe just using too much of it or it's in the wrong places. Um, their special blend is what I don't I've know. Heard. I don't yeah. know. The alcohol cleaner too. They showed it on Sunday Night Baseball a few weeks ago. The alcohol cleaner with the rosin gives you a pretty sticky residue. It's like the hand sanitizer effect, right? Some people have used hand sanitizers that are really sticky. Yeah. It's sort of no. like that once you get the rosin involved. Because it's evaporating the water and leaving more of the stickiness behind. Mm-hmm. But nobody told him to wash his hands with alcohol. Yeah. That I, what I don't like own. is that there's still an element of subjectivity and selectivity in it. Yes, the checks are not random, but how they're doing the checks and what they're checking for is still somewhat random. You know, yeah. they're touching them and going, hmm, this is pretty sticky. You know, like it's all relative to other people's stickiness. And the <laughs> solutions that have put out, that people have put out there are, no, are, are not good so far for the most part i i don't think you can use a spin rate baseline for example domingo herman's spin rate was up 50 50 rpm last night that is within the normal start to start variation tom tango who is a, the data architect for baseball put out a, t- a tweet thread today saying that 50 percent 50 rpm uh difference is like the difference of one evolution one revolution of the ball you know on the way to home plate uh, and so the, it's just not a meaningful difference. Uh, when you start talking about 300 RPM and 400 RPM, that's what spider tack used to give pitchers. That is a meaningful number. However, it's a little bit like, uh, steroids. When you're trying to study steroids, you don't know when they started and when they stopped, you know? And so how do you set a baseline for doing Domingo Herman? You know, where, where do you start? When, where was he clean? If he does, if he'd been doing his whole career, then then the baseline would say he's not cheating because he's got the same RPM as ever. So the I think that that's actually kind of a non-starter is using uh you know benchmarks related to to spin and movement to find pitchers, but um you know the other aspect of just touching the hands and saying this is too sticky for me is uh, also not really great. It's the Goldilocks principle. Yeah, just too sticky, right. not sticky enough, okay. just right. Like that's weird. It's very subjective. Every umpire's definition of what is too sticky, what feels too sticky, will be different. You have to have some kind of test. There has yes. to be a better way. You know, did you say you found a new subculture on Twitter of of stickiness tests, like people that actually focus on this in other aspects of life? Well, what? I don't know if we just sort of stumbled onto this, but there is an actual stickiness test. For printing inks, there is a tack meter, a very old-fashioned piece of test apparatus where rollers make contact and are separated. This cl- this is close to the process when ink is transferred in printing machines. So there is a tack meter. There is something that measures how sticky something is. 
And so if there is such a thing, uh, could it be adapted to use on the field? Mm, could we get an antique version? Could we get a 19th century device for measuring Here it stickiness? Here comes out with a tack meter. <laughs> get 30 of them, oh, one for no, every Oh, no, no, it's too much tack. It's too much tack. He's thrown out of the game. <laughs> I'd be awesome if it weighed like 60 pounds and had to be wheeled out on one of those <laughs> AV carts. That'd be incredible. Come on, touch the tack meter. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I will say that it's just rosin debate. I had two separate people on separate teams say, yeah, it's rosin, but you're only allowed to use the rosin in the rosin bag on the mound, guys applying their special stuff in the dugout, giving it time to dry, whatever else is in there, is not allowed. So the it's just rosin argument isn't an argument. It's where is the rosin from? Is it the rosin from the rosin bag? And in that case, it's really hard to make your hands as sticky as some of these guys' hands are. May- are. So It's also a convenient description of what they're doing. It's also a way out that... Unfortunately, Max Scherzer has shown them, you know, like, here's yeah. here's what my argument is. It's just rosin and we're allowed to have rosin. And so without a test, we don't know. And we can look at little clumps of things there on the Oh, he's got that that looks like pine tar on his there. Or what is that? And that doesn't look white or whatever it is. And uh, then he's like, well, that's just dirt. And then you're like, oh, well, you know, it's 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 useless. You know, yeah. it's useless. It's kind of it's it actually has a parallel to the earlier discussion about whether or not Judge was was looking for signs, I think. Mm. And the parallel is that we've made certain things illegal and in the in the place when it comes to stealing signs, it's electronics are illegal. And we now have a person that goes in the dugout and looks for electronics and does so randomly that works for MLB. And so I'm I, I'm pretty certain in saying that there aren't any electronics in the in the dugout anymore and that they're not using electronics to steal signs in the dugout. I can I, I think that's I can say that pretty certainly without that test in the sticky stuff area. You know, we don't know. We don't know what to do. You know, we don't have that 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 same like kind of certainty level. And so I can say that I don't think that there's anything to the judge story. Really. <laughs> I mean, maybe they figured something out. Maybe you're stealing signs, but it was the old traditional way of, yeah. you know, just figuring out the person's tell. Ken Rosenthal had a great piece about Jay Jackson saying he was tipping his pitches. Uh, that just seems just baseball. But without a, a test that an MLB person can administer in the moment, we are left still guessing about sticky stuff. I just want someone wearing one of those bib things that they have for on-field people to wheel out the giant tack meter. I hope the tack meter is large, <laughs> Wait, I heavy, and ridiculous. I, I'm going to look at what the tack meter looks like now. I think it looks like an old hat if my Google search is uh, accurate, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> Jay Jackson's a 35-year-old journeyman reliever, and... Yeah, he admits the tipping pitches. Every time a player does something unusual with their eyes or does something unusual on the field, yes, it might arouse suspicion, but it's not going to be a conspiracy every time. It's not always going to be some deep-level conspiracy. We found some kind of hack, and we shouldn't be doing this. Like It could have been as simple as something that Jackson was showing, which they admitted to in this case. It could have been something the catcher was doing. Like All of those things are possible, and all of that is legal. Relaying information that you see to your teammates is legal. Runners on base do it. That's part of the game is decoding what the other team is going to do. So for me, a big nothing burger. 
I think people got really upset about it, like disproportionately upset about it for reasons I really don't understand. I don't know if it's fallout from what happened like five years ago or what exactly was the reason, but people need to calm down. If you want to get upset about something, get upset about the Drew Rasmussen injury because that's a big deal because Drew Rasmussen is a really good pitcher. And the Rays, even though they've got very good pitching depth, they have this established organizational skill of finding more pitchers when they need them, they're going to miss him. Right? Taj Bradley's been struggling at AAA. He's probably part of this solution. But once you get past that, you know, you and I were digging into this 40-man roster. They don't necessarily have the clear and obvious next guy up. They do have Tyler Glass now, soon to return from the IL, which is a really nice thing to have in their back pocket. But the lead they've opened up in the AL East, as impressive as that is, it's only four and a half over the Orioles. It's only seven and a half each over the Jays and Yankees entering play on Wednesday. I think that lead is very, very fragile, especially since it's only mid-May. But I think the state of their pitching injury-wise could make them more vulnerable than people realize. I think that was the best thing that Britt said about this whole uh, Yankees dust-up, Yankees-Blue Jays dust-up, is that this is going to be a crazy division. It's going to be a crazy division all year long. It's going to be a wild ride. I don't know if I agree that they're playing for second, but I think this is the best division in baseball and that they're all really good teams. And these these series that are, you know, that are in the in the division are going to be really tight all the way through. The Drew Rasmussen thing is a big deal. It's a precursor to Tommy John. One in two people that gets that sort of injury uh, has Tommy John in the next uh, year. Um, and at some point you wonder if the Rays magic will, uh, you know, run out, you know, will they sometime at some point go to the cupboard and find it bare? Uh, right now they've, today they've optioned Yanni Chirinos down, um, and he's been okay. Uh, but, uh, he was also part of their rotation. So you got to kind of put Bradley and if Chirinos is down, even Glasnow comes up, I think uh, you you want to come you want to keep Bradley in there. But then if there's another injury, and there always is another injury, they don't really have another starter to go to after that. Yeah, the thing about Chirinos, by the way, the back of the baseball card stats, the 2.79 ERA and the .97 WHIP in 29 innings, very misleading. He has struck out less than 10 percent of the batters he's faced this year. That is a ridiculously low strikeout rate. They knew, like they knew, they keep throwing throwing him out there. It wasn't going to continue at that level. He's not quite the same guy that he was a few seasons ago when he kind of broke into the back of their rotation. Maybe they get him back healthy again. It's been a long, long road back just to get healthy again for him. But Britt, how concerned would you be about the current state of the Rays after losing Rasmussen? So I think it's a concern, but I'm not as doom and gloom as you guys are. Because, for example, yesterday they ran a bullpen game out there. The Mets countered with Justin Verlander. How do you like those odds? The Tampa Bay Rays still won, and they won in pretty decisive fashion. So I think is it going to be tough to sustain another injury to that rotation? Yeah. I think having Tyler Glasnow come back right away and not get hurt again because it feels like he's been missing for quite a long time is going to really be important. Um, but I think if we look at this division and we say, well, the Orioles are only four and a half behind, the Orioles have their own problems in the starting rotation. We have our concerns. We talked last week about the concerns with depth. And, you know, Derek said that they should go out immediately yesterday and get a starter, similar to Miami. Um, and not Miami get a starter, but Miami kind of make a move. So, I mean, if you look at it that way, then they're what? Who's in third? They're what, seven and a half up? Six and a half up? 
Yeah. Because I'm not sure the Orioles are going to be able to sustain that pace. The Orioles' next couple weeks are important. They have a soft June, but this Memorial Day, like this stretch through Memorial Day is pretty tough. So I'm curious if the Orioles are going to hold up too. So I'm a little less like sky is falling because Tampa Bay's lineup is so good and so well-balanced, and they do this to us all the time. They continue to run out a really good team, even though nobody knows how or why they get it done. So to me, the definition of insanity is to keep saying the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So I'm going to go all in on Tampa continuing to be good because they've given me no reason to doubt them over the stretch of the last, what, I don't know, 10 years. Like they, they just always have been able to get it done. And I don't see why this could be any different. I do think one more injury out of the rotation would, would break the, the old proverbial camel's back. But with Glass now coming back, I think that there's a chance for them to continue to be good. I mean, they're just, they're, they're rolling and they're playing like a winning team. And they've played at this, they've played at this high level since the season started. You know how hard that is? And now we're doubting that they can continue to be a good team. I don't think they're going to keep playing, you know, this crazy winning percentage. But I think if you look at it, the teams that are the most threatening are further back than Baltimore. Here's where I'm at. I think being good in this division can still keep you in last place. I would describe what the Red Sox have done. Being 23 and 20, that's a good team. You're three over 500 or 40 games. It's on pace to be 12 over for the season. If you're 12 over 500 at the end of the season, that's more than 90 wins. We'd count that as a good team. So good might not be good enough in this division. The hardest thing about the Rays to figure out, aside from this Rasmussen injury mattering, is if you take a look at performances on the offensive side this year, and you compare what has happened so far to what rest of season projections say is likely to happen with players going forward, there are some wide spreads because they've got guys like Yandy Diaz and Josh Lowe and Harold Ramirez. They have a whole group of players on that list who are among the biggest overperformers relative to projection so far. What level they settle in at is a huge unknown for me. Like I I don't know. Is is Yandy Diaz going to keep hitting for this much power all season? The math says no, but I think he's probably more than he used to hit for. It seems like he's made a legitimate adjustment, right? I think those are some of the tougher questions for me to answer. Like, how much do I buy into this magnitude of improvement for their lineup? It's crazy to me. When you look at the Rays, they have a team WRC plus of 140 through 43 games. The next best team, Atlanta, phenomenal lineup, right? 116. That's a gigantic gap. Even if the Rays are the best offense in baseball from today forward, they're probably not the best offense in baseball by that wide of a margin. That would be unbelievable if they actually pulled that off. I wonder if they've pulled... I wonder if some of the rule changes really played into their favor in terms of stuff that they are already doing. There yeah. was there was something that was people were talking about on, on uh, Twitter the other day that I thought was interesting. The idea that uh, now part of running a successful baseball team is about anticipating future rule changes and like trying to be out in front of them. And uh, I wonder sometimes when I look at like, you know, I don't think it worked in Cleveland, but, you know, Cleveland's whole bet on, you know, hitting singles. I was like, oh, maybe that's really going to work in a post shift world. You know, it didn't. Uh, but uh, if you look at Something that the Rays have always done that's a little different than other teams. Uh, if you look at so the Satcast numbers, there's this number called barrel rate, and uh, you know this year they're doing well in barrel rate, number one in barrel rate. That's something that traditionally teams like Atlanta, Minnesota, the Yankees, and Dodgers they're always number you know in the top five, and they are there again. 
And when, you know, Farhan Zaidi took over the Giants, they went from middle of the pack in barrel rate to the top of the uh, of the league, and they're seventh now. So barrel rate is something that everyone always does. One thing that has set Tampa Bay apart is they hit the ball really hard, and they have done this year over year without necessarily always putting in the right angles. They hit a lot of ground balls. They have guys that make contact and hit the ball hard, and if they hit the ball hard in the air, that's a bonus. This year, they're hitting the ball hard in the air, and that's why they're 140. But maybe there's something to you know Tampa's strategy of just saying, hey, we want guys with good hit tools that hit the ball hard, and everything else will fall into place. Whereas other teams are like, no, they need to hit the ball in the air hard. So I think there could be, I think there's a fair amount of luck in this, of course. If you have a team this hot, there's luck. But there might also be something to like their philosophy of hitting, the way the players they go for, and then the rule changes and how this all goes together. The ball it has less drag than usual and is flying more than it has in the last couple of years. There's no shift rules and they hit the ball hard and they make a lot of contact. Somehow that like all goes together. And you're like, oh yeah, that's why their offense is best in the big leagues. Yeah, it's just so strange. I'm looking at the year-to-year changes. There's a fun page over on Fangraphs where you can take a look at any stat and see who's improved the most and who's declined the most from last year to this year. And looking at barrel rate, the Rays have four of the top seven biggest individual improvers in barrel rate alone. Jose Siri's there. Randy Arozarena is there. Uh, Josh Lowe, who I mentioned earlier, and Yandy Diaz are all there. And they have two more in the top 30. Wander is inside the top 30 in that group. So it's like, yeah, you do, and Brandon Lau is the other one. You do these things that are generally good, but it's like, that doesn't explain this. Like, the, yeah, the whole team just started hitting the ball too. in the air more yeah, often. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the other thing, too, though, is you guys are acting like Tampa can't possibly make a move to get better. No, no. I, I'm just right? asking. Like, oh, so just so asking if, if they, they set themselves a up for out of the this. rotation. Can't they also add a pitcher? That's allowed too. So I guess I don't. I'm not quite as doom and gloom on like the Rays are going to all of a sudden rocket down to last place and be the Red Sox. Um, no, I no, I don't. I don't think that's sort of what I was Very, saying. Well, I, I was just sort okay. of saying that. I think. Are you saying that like good isn't enough in this division that they may rocket down? Because I don't see that at all. No, I don't think they're going to do the first to last sort of thing after this crazy good start. I think what what I'm saying is it's it's not in the bag. Like as great as that start is. All of these teams can catch them reasonably. Like if you the the Jays and the Yankees are the two teams that are best equipped to do it right now. The Orioles' great start is is really good for them long term because it's another step in the right direction. We've talked about their young talent. They could call some of those guys up and keep getting better. But where I look at this division, I think maybe part of what's made the Jays Yankees series so contentious, but maybe makes every division rivalry a little bit bigger, is the balanced schedule, which I really like. Mm-hmm. I like. Yeah. seeing matchups we don't ordinarily see throughout the year. Like normally you, you turn on the app and you look at the games and you get a couple interleague matchups or you think past years you'd look and okay, that's an unusual matchup. But most of the matchups were things you've seen a lot. This year's wild like that. You see a handful of the familiar matchups, but you see a lot more of the unfamiliar matchups because of the balanced schedule. But that also puts more weight on each head-to-head game. Your number of chances to close a gap on a team in the division directly by just playing them, it's fewer. So that makes every one of those games more valuable. And I think, I don't know if that was the intent of the actual adjustment. I think it was just to keep the best teams from beating up on each other. But I like that. I think it just, it gives you a little more weight 
early in the year when these games in the past felt like they just didn't mean that much. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and that might also contribute to what we saw. You're right. I think that's not something I considered, but certainly something that like could be a byproduct of all of this. It's a lot harder. It's going to be a lot harder to do like what Atlanta did last year in closing the gap on the Mets because of the schedule, because of how many times they play each other. Right. So that's, that's going to make like those late August matchups. Like the last time you may see with someone in your division, feel like playoff games to some extent. Mm, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. I've also thought that like uh, what we're seeing now uh, might happen, which is that, um, you know, you get a better sense of how good a team is across all of baseball this yes, way. Yes, exactly. Because yeah. we've had teams come out of the central and go into the playoffs and you say, oh, wow, like, you know, the Cardinals won 95 games this year. Like, they've got to be as good as the Braves. And then the Braves, you know, just run all over them. And you're like, well, was that just, you know, one series or, you know, what was going on there? Um, I think now that you're seeing these teams all play each other more often, you're getting a better sense of the relative quality of each division. And unfortunately, uh, it, it is showing us a little bit of what we thought was true in the past, which is the coastal divisions uh, are, are, you know, more competitive uh, than the centrals. Uh, and that's, that's proving to be the case now that they all play each other. It's pretty interesting. I mean, the Twins Dodgers is one of the series that sort of jumped off the page for me to start this week. It was a fun game on Monday night. Dodgers pulled that one out 9-8. Twins came back, won the second game of the series. Game three happening on Wednesday afternoon as we record this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying there's no good teams in, in the Central. So that's not no, no, no. But you, you get a better idea of how good you really are when you see less of those same teams. I think for the Twins, they're in a stretch right now. They just played the Padres last week. They had a series against the Cubs wedged in there. Dodgers right now, the Angels, you know, kind of a middling team, but a team they're that proving could be a their metal more than if they had just spent you know two weeks beating up on the Royals and White Sox. Yeah, and I just think these stretches of the schedule, I I think as you said, they they show us so much more about the identity of a team. That is a much improved structure for 162 games to have it play out this way you know this came up a minute ago Britt you were saying with the Rays winning a, a bullpen game against Justin Verlander that that's that is demoralizing I think to to have a a game yeah. like that where one of your aces someone who's supposed to be able to help you break out of a funk goes into a matchup and you lose while the other team cobbles it together with Jalen Beeks and Chirinos and some relievers the same thing actually happened in the Brewers-Cardinals matchup. It wasn't a Verlander-grade starter, but it was Jordan Montgomery, a good starter for yeah. St. Louis. Wade Miley left in the second inning. The Brewers threw all of their B relievers out there to get to the late-inning guys. And then you know Peter Strzelecki and Devin Williams are their two best relievers right now. They got to the A bullpen at the end, and they held on and won that game 3-2. to two. And that felt like a stolen win for the Brewers in some ways. Because they got just smoked in the first game of that series. The Cardinals in the last week have taught Wilson Contreras how to catch, allegedly, which is obviously not true. <laughs> so he's a catcher again this it. week, if you're keeping track. 
And yeah, yeah. and Nolan Arenado is back to being Nolan Arenado, which much to Eno's chagrin yeah. was like, hey, he didn't look at all like himself in the underlying numbers. No, and now but I was a week clear later, to say back. that he could totally come back. I'm just saying that he did it's it. crazy yeah. that sometimes you look at a guy and he's just like, that guy doesn't know how to play baseball. <laughs> you know? and, and now he's just the guy that he's been the whole time again. Now he's back just... to being the Hall of Famer. I, you know, I think Britt, you're right. And hit. I mean, they've really been hitting. And mm-hmm. it's like... Uh, I, I looked this up. I was I was I was interested. They kind of uh, made the switch to Contreras at DH at a at a convenient time, basically around the beginning of May. Um, and so I just thought, hey, let me just look at the starting pitchers' uh, stats since then, since he was the problem, uh, and uh, and getting him out of catching would obviously solve this problem. The starting pitchers since May first have the twenty second uh, best strikeout rate, which is about exactly where they were. I think they were twenty fourth, so uh, maybe they they, they j- jumped a few ranks and have a five sixty ERA that seems mostly supported by the underlying uh, numbers. So uh, <laughs> I I don't think uh, Contreras was the problem. Um, I do wonder if there is a soft science here to, uh, telling your players, Hey, the front office doesn't think this is cool. You know, like (laughs) this is not, this is not fine. You know, you need like we, the front office is doing everything they can to make this team better. Now you need to do everything you can. I don't know if there's, there's something to that where they're like, you know, Hey, this is not something we just sit on our butt. I think the yeah. the most interesting thing for me with the Cardinals in the last like 10 days or so, one, I broke Kenley Jansen by saying he was a Hall of Famer on last week's show because he blew a couple saves against the Cardinals over the weekend in that Boston-St. Louis series. But the most interesting thing for me is Jack Flaherty's start on Monday, which was the triumphant return of Wilson Contreras behind the plate. And it was by far the best start of the season from Flaherty. It was seven scoreless innings, three hits, a season-high 10 strikeouts, and only two walks. And I look at those results and I go, well, was that a different Jack Flaherty stuff-wise than the guy that we've seen over the course of the other eight starts? Like, has he has he flipped the script? Has he done something so different that we can start to trust him again now? Because it's things like that that need to happen if the Cardinals are going to be as dangerous as they've been in the past. They're obviously alive in this division because the division hasn't done enough to push anyone out. The Central's wide open. Clearly, it's been the entire time. It's yeah. amazing. Guess what Jack Flaherty did in his last start that he hadn't done all year? Had the second best fastball velocity of the year. So it, in the start after he was asked about his fastball <laughs> yeah. velocity. Where, and, and rudely responded. Was a too. jerk about the question. He comes yeah. back with more velocity and has the best start of the season. 1.3 ticks higher than the than the game against that in which he was questioned about his fastball velocity, in which his fastball velocity was the worst or second worst it had been in like three or four years. So, oh yeah, don't ask about that. <laughs> if you were if you were there, if you asked the question the first time, I know this wasn't you, but if you were there after the turnaround, the velocity spiked and pitches well, do you go right back to the well with another velocity question? Do you just look him right in the eye and say, Jack, I noticed your velocity was back up. You pitched really well tonight. What was the difference? Yes. I mean, does 22-year-old Brittany, who is like terrified in the clubhouse every day, ask? Probably not. But where I'm at now, absolutely. I remember <laughs> one, one spring, Jim Johnson, who used to be the Orioles closer for years. Oh, blast from the past. After a spring outing, and he wasn't afraid to like say it. He didn't mince words. 
He goes, anyone ask me about my velocity, I'll punch you in the throat. <laughs> so he was just like, oh, my, <laughs> my gosh. God. I guess we won't ask about that. But in spring training, but during the season, like, you want to be a jerk, be a jerk. The way I see it, the TV cameras are rolling. And if you want to just be a jerk, be a jerk, that's fine. It's but probably if, not going to reflect on me as much as it reflects on you. Yes. And what I have found is like 99% of the time, if you ask a guy about some facet of the game they're struggling with and they get irritated and says, this has nothing to do with why I'm struggling. 99% of the time, it absolutely is why they're struggling and it's already in their head and they just don't want you to vocalize it. Right? So that is what you're seeing. I mean, I was around the Mets this past weekend and every question, this is how you know that the, the Mets are struggling because every question Buck Showalter gets asked, he goes, well, I don't know about that. Right? He's in prime, like the sky's blue. I wouldn't call it blue mode. Right? So this is what happens with players. Your velocity is down. Well, that's not a problem. Oh, I don't even know. I don't even care. Now all of a sudden it's magically oh, up and it? he's pitching better. Yeah, exactly. It is just a game to these guys. So yes, he was aware. Yes, it's important. And absolutely, if I was in that Cardinals clubhouse, would I say, hey, did you notice that your velocity was up? And, even, mm. and if he says no, I'd be like, all right. Guess he doesn't pay attention to his stats. I'll write that too. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's something to watch in the next few starts, right? If he has the velo back, sure. Then the rebound is very possible. If he's more like the guy he was when he was asked about it, I think we're going to see more ups and downs the way it's been up to this point. I wanted to ask both of you, do you think like every game from a statistical standpoint carries the same weight? A loss is a loss, a win is a win. It doesn't matter how much you win by or how much you lose by. The Cardinals winning by 17 on Monday and losing by one on Tuesday, that's a split regardless. It doesn't, the runs don't actually matter. But do you think teams carry that to the next day? Some teams more so than others where, oh, hey, we just lost the, the, the bullpen game. We just lost the game we shouldn't have lost. Or we just got blown out. And how do you respond to that? Do you think that actually is a thing where teams have a certain level of, of toughness or resiliency? I know those are just kind of kind of lame words to throw on there but how would you describe yeah. that it, does that matter does the way a team no. reacts to a win or a loss actually matter in the grand scheme of things is their ability to cope with successes and failures actually help them on the margins to win more often so i have found that blowout losses sometimes are the easiest for guys to get over just move like, on they go yeah. behind early they get buried like the team scores five runs in the first inning the pitcher gets you know out of the game it was nobody's it was nobody's one yeah. fault. There was like nobody there's nobody that has to be like, oh man, I screwed that game. It's like we all yeah. screwed that game. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Five things went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple like the win, the worst clubhouses to walk into are the teams that are up, not by like one run, because that happens like and they lose. The teams that are up like four or five runs that just watch it unravel in the eighth and ninth. Those are bad. Those are like guys talk about like those are gut punches. Those are like, we blew this game. And it causes division, right? Because then the hitters are mm -hmm. like, well, we did our job. And they're looking yeah, over at the relievers like, what, yeah. you, what were you doing? That to me just really depends on who's in the clubhouse. How tight is that group across the board where they, they either look at each other like that with the blame or they kind of just brush it off together? Because what happened in that Brewers-Cardinals game last night with two outs in the ninth, uh, I think it was Wilson Contreras, hit a line drive at Joey Weimer in center field. And it had some funky, like, late tailing action on it. So it looked like it was easily the third out. And instead, it just, like, moved the last second. It was a double off the wall. And you could have easily had the, uh-oh, if the Cardinals score here, tie hey, the game Rook, going to win. You screwed the game for us. Yeah, on, with two outs in the ninth, after all of the, the lower-level relievers in the roster did their jobs, 
you just blew the game with your closer going five outs. That's a demoralizing way to lose when everything else had fallen into place before that. So uh, again, it still would have only been one loss on the sheet, but it just felt like it was more important because it, it came on the heels of a blowout and it put the Brewers in a position where they weren't going to be swept in a series by a St. Louis team that's trying to make up ground. Yeah. There are games that hurt more than others, I think, but like by and large, how they lose most of the time doesn't matter. If the if they're blowing leads every night, then you see division in the clubhouse, right? Then you see guys get real upset. Um, and if they do it in similar fashion, I think, you know. Yes, if it's the same two guys. I think that's a little bit about what the Contreras situation was about a little bit. But what's weird is it almost felt like the front office taking sides in a debate because there is, you know, just there is this sort of fraction between Contreras and and Jack Flaherty. And then one of the first uh, one of the first starts back for Contreras, a catcher was catching Jack Flaherty, which could be burying the previous issue in some way. It's like, hey, we're moving past this. We're getting this out of the way. I, I don't know. Like, that's that's a, that's a question for Katie or Katie Wu. She covers the card. Right, right? Yeah, she's, but- she's there. But it's a general question there, too, of just how how much can you affect clubhouse chemistry? How much does it matter? How much and how much does how you lose and in and, and what types of ways you lose? Like, does, how much does that affect clubhouse chemistry? I do believe there's something there because you will notice uh, you'll notice a quiet clubhouse. Um, you know, that's kind of yeah. often like a tense clubhouse, a quiet clubhouse. Um, you'll notice if they're loose and different parts of the clubhouse are playing with the like, cards with each other and stuff. Like if there's, if there's, um, you know, starters playing, starting pitchers playing with relievers playing with, you know, hitters, that's, you know, there are natural divisions because there's hitters meetings and there's pitcher meetings and, you know, like there's different things you have to do during the day that keep you away from the other people. And so if you do go into the clubhouse and notice that, you know, there are starting pitchers hanging out with hitters. That's rare. And that's probably a sign of a pretty healthy clubhouse. But, you know, as, you know, divisions mount with the way you lose, if their starting rotation is terrible, like I wonder if in St. Louis, wonder if Jack Flaherty's stressed because he feels like the starting pitchers are letting the rest of the team down. The hitters are hitting, the, you know, the bullpen's doing fine, and they're the ones with the six ERA, you know? Um, and, and so I wonder if that's part of why, you know, there's lashing out or, or any sort of uh, friction within the clubhouse too. I think with Jack Flaherty, if you look at 2018, 2019 and 2021, the three full seasons that were played where he was pitching like a frontline starter, seeing that you should believe he can do that again. He's not old enough to have lost it all. He's 27 years old. He should still be able to pitch at or near that level. So I could see where either the pressure's on him because he's internalizing it on himself or because maybe he could feel it from other guys in the clubhouse. I don't know, but I, I could 100% see in that position feeling a little extra weight because he should be part of their solution. No doubt about that. I wonder what the mood is like in the Mets clubhouse right now. They just brought up Mark Vientos, another prospect. Brett Beatty came up earlier this year. Francisco Alvarez came up earlier this year. I talked to Will Salmon on last Friday's podcast, and this is a Mets team that's actually had a few things with those young guys go right in the face of a lot of other things going wrong on mostly on the rotation side. And that's been a rotation that's missed Justin Verlander for most of the season and missed Max Scherzer during his suspension. 
Britt, you have to talk about the Mets on a very frequent basis. I would yeah. not make it a year doing media in New York because I would preach patience too often. They'd say, we don't do patience here. Get out of here. Leave, Midwest guy. Beat it. So are they really in as much trouble as people make them out to be? Or is it fair to preach patience despite their flaws? So they're in trouble, I think. Um, I was just around them, like I said. They were in D.C. Um, over the weekend, like a weird four-game series that ended Monday. Um, here's my take on it. If we get to Memorial Day and this team hasn't figured a way to turn it around, I think panic sets in. I think the next like 10 days or so are going to tell us a lot because Scherzer is back now. Verlander is back. Carrasco is coming back. So they should, they are now getting healthier in the rotation. They have now Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, and now Mark Vientos. So the, the young guys that everybody wanted are here. The starting pitchers that they signed are healthy. So if they don't put it together, then I think absolutely the panic has set in. I mean, this is an old team. This is a team that I don't think um, really was was put together with the rules in mind because the rules favor like quick athletic teams. The Mets are well, are none of those things. Yeah, They're also an older team. And the problem, as we've talked about on this podcast before, is older guys, not only do they break down easier – but if they've been hurt once, their chances of getting hurt and going to the IL again just keep increasing and increasing and increasing. So, you know, they haven't pitched well out of the rotation, and that's no secret. But to me, the most concerning part isn't that they have a over five ERA because Verlander and Scherzer haven't done anything. It's their lineup. Nobody in that lineup is inspiring confidence, and that is a tricky thing. You can't just turn over the whole lineup. They've been calling up young guys to try to get someone to give them a shot in the arm because. They just aren't getting it done offensively at all. I mean, even days where they're pitching kind of pieces it together and they've overused their bullpen, so shocker, their bullpen hasn't been that good. Um, they just aren't hitting at all. Like top to bottom, that lineup has really struggled. And so for me, I'm wondering, is that an approach thing? How can this many guys not be hitting at the same time? A slump? Yeah, maybe, but we are now a month and a half into the season. That's an awfully long slump. Right. It becomes to the point of the time where once you get into Memorial Day and you can basically flip the calendar and see June, it's like, is this just what this team is? And Andy McCullough wrote a great column about that today. So I'm not like fully ready to press that panic button yet. Again, I covered a Nationals team that was 19 and 31 and won the World Series. They had a lot of injured guys on the in uh, they had a lot of big guys on the IL. The Mets have had a lot of big guys on the IL. They are capable of having a run because of how good some of these guys are. But Again, as we sit here, as you guys pointed out with the schedule, they don't have the ability to make up all these games on the Braves by playing Atlanta a million times. So these next 10 days, I think are going to tell us everything we need to know about the 2023 New York Mets, who honestly, I don't know who's a bigger disappointment so far this year, the Padres or the Mets. What would you guys say? I think it's really, you can make a case for both of those teams. They have identical the records. Biggest disappointments. Yeah, it's like measuring yeah. tackiness, you know. <laughs> we need to, oh, I found it. The I, I need a disappointment adhesion beer. tester. It's only uh, $1,200 Amazing. a pop. I think I'm more disappointed in the Padres because I think for the reasons you mentioned, Britt, as an older core team, you can explain what's happened to the Mets a little easier, right? Missing the guys they've been missing Okay, that sort of happens with an older roster. 
Yeah, and they do have enough guys underperforming offensively where you could say, okay, they're going to probably get more from Francisco Lindor today forward than they've got so far. Pete Alonso opened the season hot. He's been colder over the last like 20 games, but he's going to be fine. He's still 36% better than league average for the season. The tough decisions they have to make are with some of the veteran glue guys. If you're going to bring up someone like Vientos, are you going to push Eduardo Escobar off the roster or at least push him into a smaller role or Tommy Pham? What are you going to do with guys like that who have underperformed? Because those are tough players to read. They should be league average guys, but they're not. But they're at an age where perhaps they've lost enough to not be able to bounce back to that level. There's an uneasy fit, though, that you're pointing at, which is Mark Vientos doesn't play a premium defensive position. Uh, And neither does Eduardo Escobar. And uh, neither does Brett Beatty. And neither does Tommy Pham. So right now, on your bench, you likely have two corner infielders or three corner infielders and a corner outfielder and two catchers or, or a catcher, you know? So uh, I think they I think they might be carrying two catchers, three catchers. So it's like that is not a very flexible roster, and it's it gets really dicey if Lindor gets hurt, or if Nemo gets hurt again, and he's gotten hurt again, like Britt pointed out in terms of you know past injury predicts future injury. So uh, yes, this is a, the best roster they could put together right now, but it also isn't built to withstand much (laughs) you know it's going to if anybody gets hurt again it's going to it's going to be weird there's going to be somebody weird in center field you don't think should be playing center or somebody weird playing defense up the middle in the infield that you that doesn't have a bat or whatever so uh, i just think that that's what happens when you're an old team because young players that are ready to play those are the players that play center and short and second and catcher, those are the, you know, at least center and second, those are the places their defense plays best. You want to have a young player in those places. And uh, they don't really necessarily have young players at these premium uh, positions because uh, for the most part, they've, they've traded them away. You know, Pete Crow Armstrong is a, is a pos- is a, is a center fielder that we could be talking about as, as someone who could come up and, and help them in center. Um, but he's with the Cubs now. Yeah, that was that was one of those moves that it's coming back to bite them now because that's the type of player they're missing. Ronnie Mauricio having a, a great year at AAA does give them that some athleticism big. up the middle. I mean, yeah. I think yeah. Jeff McNeil is a, a unique player because he doesn't have a ton of power, but he's very versatile. So maybe you move him around and play Lindor with Mauricio up the middle. I, I think Alvarez, you know, by Will's account, has been much better than expected defensively, which is a big win for them because over time he's going to hit for plenty of power. Whether or not he hits for a high average and gets on base a lot, that's probably the other part of the the questions on, on Alvarez. I think they can still rally back. I'm with Britt. I think you don't want to hit the panic button yet. I think a lot of teams do look at Memorial Day as kind of an important marker, even if, even if they should wait longer. I don't, I don't know. I would argue that early is better. I made that argument last week, and then Jess Chisholm got hurt. Sorry, Marlins fans. Lucky for you, uh, I'm not your GM, and the season's not lost. Uh, so... Here we go. So here's what we got coming up. Two against the Rays will happen before Memorial Day. One of those is today. One of those is tomorrow. Three against the Guardians, three against the Cubs, and three against the Rockies. That's not a bad stretch of schedule after they finish this. Right. After they finish this, this, right, they finish this Rays, after this Rays series ends, that gets easier. They should be at 500. They should be. And if you're there on Memorial Day with all the injuries you had, okay. And you know, if you need to add more in season that costs money as far as just taking on salary, and not giving up future value to get it, you had an owner willing to do that. 
it's not the most sustainable long-term approach because that part takes time and no one likes to hear that. Building the Dodgers doesn't happen overnight. It just doesn't. Until yes. you do that, you're acting more like the angels. You're throwing money at your problems and at the top that has limitations and not, and not underneath. Yeah. Yeah. You have a, it's like the iceberg problem where you look good at the, at the top of what's going on underneath. Mm hmm. And that's happened with the Mets so far. And I think that's yeah. to some extent what's happened with the Padres. The Padres traded away, trade away, trade away, trade away. Yes. And, you know, they have a bunch of players at the top of, line of everything that looks okay. But there's, there's no way right now for us to sit here and be like, this is how we fix the Padres, right? There's the only way no. for the Padres to fix themselves is to play better. Like, there's it, no right? like, yeah, yeah, you know, yes. like call this guy up and put him here. There's nobody, there's nobody in the coffers. Really. No. It's really more no. like the, it's like the opposite of what we talked about with the Rays earlier, where the Rays have these guys that are exceeding and you're like, okay, so like how far above rest of season projection are you going to go on the Padres side? You're like, how far below your rest of season projection are you going to go? Like, why have you underperformed so much to this point? Yeah, it comes from within. I think that's why the frustration is bubbling up. Uh, Bob Melvin, you could see, like uh, usually a pretty even-keeled, calm manager. You're starting to see it. There's more frustration now in San Diego. Here, Juan Soto, uh, despite his uh, meager batting average or, or averageish, whatever, it's boring batting. He's average. been better, right? Yeah, he's been better. He's actually the best hitter on the team now. Uh, yeah. He's 47% better than league average, and he's gotten the most plate appearances. Good. Xander Bogarts, you signed the guy for a lot of money. He's showed surprising power, I think. We, we wondered what his power would look like outside of Boston. The, the power's been good. He's 26% better than league average. Good. Now, the next four players in terms of plate appearances, so the next four core players in terms of player appearance, plate appearances are all below average with the stick. That's Jake Cronenworth, Manny Machado, Trent Grisham, and Haseon Kim. Now, Kim is going to give you uh, some some elite defense, and Grisham, to some extent, is doing that as well. Machado's defense is normally elite. It is pretty good this year, but he's at a non-elite defensive position, and that's really, you're looking at him and Cronenworth as like part of the, you know, just not playing up to the back of their baseball cards. Um, and I think, you know, those guys could get hot. I mean, that could just be it. You know, those guys get hot. Then it's a more complete lineup with four or five or six hitters that you really fa you fear, you know? What's interesting yeah. to me is when you look at the playoff odds over at Fangraphs, you know, with the Mets and Padres, both three below 500 through 43 games played, both teams are 20 and 23. The Padres come out with a 67% chance of making the playoffs. The Mets, 49.6. So... I think that's a reflection of the older roster, the way the projections on an individual level look for these players. I kind of share that Maybe optimism. I, I'm more comfortable. Too. I don't know. You know, the Padres still play the Rockies a fair amount. Yeah. And the Giants, I'm still just not convinced the Giants are nearly the team they were two years ago. I think they're they're kind of in that weird middle ground, which we'll probably dig into that, that group of middle teams a bit more uh, on next week's show. Uh, but I, I'm still... I'm less panicked about the Padres than I am about the Mets, and I'm not one to panic at this point about anybody, if that helps. <laughs> the panic yeah. meter. Very scientific. Right there with the adhesion tester. Absolutely. So we'll do our game show. It's uh, the return oh of three strikes. It is the most popular baseball game show on a podcast in the entire world. Uh, the Nielsen ratings have come out. So I'm really excited about that. I think people just like how well both of you perform on this show. So 
This week, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at players who have 20 or more stolen bases in the past calendar year. So that's from May 16th of last season through yesterday. 20 plus Brit, stolen bases about this. in that time. So we're supposed to just keep naming them until we, until we have three strikes? Yeah, you alternate naming players. A correct answer is good. An incorrect answer is a strike. First person to three strikes loses. Britt, you can go first. Cedric Mullins. Mullins, yep, third. He's got 40 steals in the past calendar year. You know? Ronald Acuna Jr. is on pace for 100 combined home runs and stolen bases, and I bold predicted that. He is second during that span. He's got 41. Britt? G1 Bay. Oh, G1 Bay is a narrow miss. He's going to get there. If we do this two weeks from now, he's probably on there. What does he have? He's one of the first guys off the list. I cut the list off at 20, but he's... I saw I saw him just below before I cut it. You got too fancy, too quick. I know. I was trying to pick the Trey Turner. Time. Yeah, Trey Turner, uh, definitely there. Twenty six steals over the past calendar year. Back to Britt. Whit Merrifield. Yep, that's pretty safe. Twenty three. Playing time started to dry up a little bit after the trade, but yeah, that's that's how Whit Merrifield gets paid. You know. Uh oh. Oh, he's frozen. He's getting he's getting no, nervous. I was gonna. He's got the yips. No, I. I kind of think I'm wrong. Tommy Edmond? Tommy Edmond's got 29. He's in the top 10 for in that span. Very very safe answer. You know, you're going to beat me at this. I'm not. I'm a... He knows a fantasy guy. He should have an edge. I should know this, yeah. This this should be a pretty big win for Edo. So if you you can pull this off, it's a nice upset. All right, Britt. Yeah, I already got got one strike, though, which is making me nervous. You're doing all right. Oh, I guess I'm Everybody's doing okay. One strike's not bad. Bay is close. Like, it's not... It's a time in the big leagues. Yeah, but now you're in my head. I know the guys who are at the top of the list this year, but then I'm like, eh, did they steal bases <laughs> last year? Did they not steal bases last year? All right, who do you got, Britt? Jorge Mateo. Oh, yeah. He's got 38. He's fourth. Randy Rosarena. <laughs> Randy Rosarena. He's got 29. So that's another correct oh, that's answer. that's a good one. Back to Britt. Uh, Let it fly. Who is it? Victor Robles on that list, TVR? Of course he is. Victor yeah. Robles. <laughs> Victor Robles is one of the worst players on this list, but he's on this list. I, I, that's, this is why I hesitated. Julio Rodriguez. Julio Rodriguez, 22. Victor Robles has 23, by the way. So it's about the only way you can look at those two players and find a, a stat that Victor Robles is better in than Julio, than Julio Rodriguez. Rodriguez. <laughs> right. It's the only one. Back to Brit. Number one on the board is still out there. This is 20 over the last calendar from the beginning of last season or the last calendar year from calendar year. So May 16th of last year forward. There's a bunch of top 10 guys still on here. So you could, you know, take any of those guys. There's a few 2020 players in this list. There's a 30, 30 player on this list. There's a 30, 30 player. That we're there is missing? a 30, 30 player from the past calendar year on this list. Is Jose Otuve on that list? Uh, no, he Jimmy. is he is not. So that's a second strike for Britt. Uh, you know, I know Kyle Tucker. Kyle Tucker is in twenty three. He's got thirty one homers and twenty three steals in the past calendar year, despite a oh, slow that was start. A good one. Some. Yeah, I didn't. I was like someone with Houston, maybe. Yes. No. Uh, a lot riding on this guess, Britt. 
anybody? <laughs> yeah, take Eno seriously. Um, Eno's I told face. you. I, li- I told you. I like forget my own name when you put me on the spot like this. I know it's. I, it doesn't make my brain work right. It's like when people watch Jeopardy and they think it's like easy. the number one guy is out there, and I can't. I don't. I don't know who it is. <laughs> like, why? Pretty much I, all that guy I'm does like, is steal bases. Is Miles Straw on the list? Yes, he is. Miles Straw has twenty-two. That's correct. I think I'm gonna. This is gonna be wrong, but Marcus Semyon. Marcus Simeon's a great answer. We talked about him at the end of last week's show as an underrated player. He's the 30-30 guy, or one of the 30-30 He's the 30-30 guy? Actually, he's he's the only 30-30 guy over the past calendar year. 33 homers, 30 steals, 125 runs, and 110 RBIs. He's a seven-war player during that span. All right, Britt, stay alive. Terrible contract. I don't know. I'm getting really nervous doing this. I'm just going to throw some names out there. Bobby Wood Jr. on the list? Bobby Wood Jr. is very high on the list. 37 Oof. steals during that span. I don't know why I'm still sweating this out. I'm literally nah. sweating. I'm like, oh, I hope he made it. You know? Cody Bellinger? Bellinger. 20 exactly. Just <laughs> barely on the list. But barely counts. But number one is still out there? Number God. one is still out there. Okay, Britt. Who else do you got? Bad planning on my part. I thought this game would just go quicker. I don't know why. No, because you know, like because we're like, terrible and we're hemming and hawing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't have terrible people do this. Fantastic audio experience. <laughs> yeah. Very fun for all listeners involved. Is Wander Franco on the list? Wander is a narrow miss, actually. So that is Brit's third strike. I have to know. Is um shit? Who is who's number name? one, dude? Who's, yeah, who's number John one? John Birdie or something? John Birdie's number one. Oh, that, that was my next guess. <laughs> Yep, and uh, the other two that are in the top is ten. Is Cash Chisholm on the list? Yeah, he's twenty. Twenty exactly. He I was gonna in. go yeah. to. Two, I was gonna go to Florida next. I had Jazz and Birdie queued up. The this year yeah, player like, that you could have had sneak in there was Asturi Ruiz. He's got I was 21. gonna wonder if Ruiz did enough this year. I forgot. I knew he was like at eighteen or nineteen or something. Yeah, I was like, well, I, he wasn't in the big leagues though, like last year. That's why I didn't time. pick so, him. Yeah, I didn't either. I knew he was the top guy this year, but uh-huh. I didn't know he was that high. Yeah, the only other top 10 or near top 10 guys that you didn't get, Nico Horner, 30 mm. steals during that span. Wow. And then uh, uh, Stephen Kwan uh, and Tyro Estrada both have 27s. So they're top 10 I knew there by was tie. another Cleveland guy. Yeah, I would have been in trouble after guy. Birdie and Jazz. Yeah, I would have been in trouble Yeah, but you had Birdie no strikes. Jazz. You were crushing it. I was really <laughs> nervous about Jazz. I was like, oh, he's hurt. He was hurt a bunch. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well played all around hopefully we'll have no, another edition well of that played. at some point I'm not going to tell you when we didn't get number one <laughs> you know you got them all right I'm terrible at this I lose every time you could literally ask me like what I ate for breakfast and you know what <laughs> that's tough but uh, yeah the best thing about this game is you never know when it's going to come back so <laughs> could be next week could be a month from now <laughs> I'm not going to tell you but if you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic you can do that $2 a month gets you in the door for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Britt on Twitter at Britt underscore Giroli. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of the 3-0 show. We are back with you on Friday. Always got the green light here. Green light.